open with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time uh, before worship service where we can study your word, and today we're going to cover a topic that's uh, particularly sensitive, and so I pray that um, you would help me uh, to speak well, um, to honor you, uh, to uh, help us understand more deeply what the Bible has to say. We pray that we would be encouraged. We pray that we would be blessed. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So, uh, does everyone have a handout? Okay. Yes. They're up there. So, let me begin by uh, explaining the two audiences that I have in mind for this talk. Um, I'm addressing the people who are not convinced uh, that the Bible says no to homosexuality. And uh, uh, you perhaps find... Um, the, the Bible sort of classic orthodox position to be um, cruel. So I hope to explain it to you in a very winsome way and persuade you. And I'm also addressing those of you who are convinced of the classic orthodox position, um, but maybe you feel tongue-tied so that if your neighbor or if your co-worker asks you about it, you find yourself at a loss on how to explain the, the biblical reasoning of it. And so I hope to give you the sort of beautiful biblical vision for why um, homosexuality is excluded. And let me begin by acknowledging, first of all, the long history, the long history of bigotry and hatred towards our LGBT friends. I don't know if you guys remember, when I was in college, it was actually big news, um, the story of Matthew Shepard. Do you guys, anyone remember Matthew Shepard? You guys, yeah. So, like, when I was in college, this was 1998, he was a college student, I think a freshman at the University of Wyoming, and uh, he was gay, and uh, he was kidnapped by these two guys uh, because he was gay. He was tied to, uh, he was taken to this very remote location, he was tied to a fence, and then he was uh, tortured, he was beaten, he was, you know, his face was smashed in with a, a gun, and then uh, he was left for dead. 18 hours later, he was found and then shortly thereafter, he died, right? And um, and then I also remember in high school, growing up, it was always like, you know, if you, if as a guy, if you were effeminate, or if you acted gay, so to speak, um, you would be picked on. And and I remember this, and 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 therefore, I would say this. I would say that the change that we've experienced in our culture. Um, and, in fact, the gay rights movement, for that part, I think is a really good thing. Um, I don't think we should go back to the way things were. Um, the fact that uh, uh, we now um, accord dignity and respect to our gay friends, I think, is a tremendous good thing for our culture. Um, and I still want to acknowledge that even though things have changed a great deal, um, it's still tough, particularly for gay teens, Right, because when you're a teenager, the worst thing you can possibly be is different, and so uh, they still experience a great deal of teasing. Um, there's an extremely high suicide rate for them. Uh, the, the 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 great the biggest cause of death for a gay teen is suicide, which is extremely tragic. Let me also say this as a way of pre, of a pre, precursor. Um, I'm not going to talk about politics, <laughs> so I'm not talking about the Supreme Court case. Um, I'm talking about the morality of homosexuality. I'm not talking about whether or not we should uh, legislate or allow for gay marriage. Um, That has to do with whether you think Christian morality should be applied in the civil sphere. There are good arguments for and against, and and it's a very complicated, nuanced view. And I think as 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 a Christian who comes down on the orthodox position on sexuality, you can go either way. So I want to allow for that. So please don't sit, don't think the whole time Pastor Michael is talking about the Supreme Court case. I am not at all. Okay. Um, so with all those uh, preliminary remarks in mind, let me uh, dive into the the main thrust of the class, which is I want to talk about the moral reasoning that the Bible expresses against homosexuality. And if you look at the Bible, there are five explicit passages in the Bible where homosexuality is specifically cited um, oh let, let me just say by way of housekeeping um, the, the, the outline is up up there near Eric Chow um, whatever you see on your table please don't 
uh, disarray, don't, because we need to stay in the good graces of the teacher um, who's allowing us to use this room. So there are five passages, right? And of those five, and actually there's uh, several, many more that indirectly talk about homosexuality, but there's five that explicitly mention it, right? Where you see the word homosexuality or, or, or its equivalent. Um, four of them, the Bible simply says, uh, expresses moral disapproval. Only one passage, which is the longest passage by far on this subject, does the Bible go on to ex- give an explanation for why it's a, why it's disapproved of, uh, disapproved of, and when you read Romans chapter one, right, at, at least from a secular perspective, Romans one feels really offensive, and it sort of just smacks you with its moral condemnation. And I want to go through Romans one very carefully, and I, and my goal today is to explain uh, the logic and the flow of what Paul is trying to say, um, and I think that's the key to then understanding. Uh, the, the, why the Bible says no to, to homosexuality. So we're going to look at the passage. And as we look at Romans chapter 1, I want you guys to uh, understand it from this framework that the Bible, uh, that in Romans 1, Paul is talking about human rebellion against God. And the, the key concept for Paul is not just that human beings rebel against God, you know, in defiance against God, but that this human uh, uh, rebellion manifests itself in what he calls suppression. Uh, I think uh, um, uh, another helpful word would be distortion of God's truth, okay? So let me just write that down real quick. Rebel, um, because this is sort of the master uh, paradigm. <clears throat> Human rebellion is distortion. Right? It's not just breaking God's laws. It's not just running away from him, but it's actually twisting and distorting God's truth, Okay. Um, first of all, as I go on and talk, uh, if you're particularly sensitive, uh, it's going to sound, because I, I, I'm kind of saying my goal is to make this as beautiful as possible, but it's going to sound unbeautiful, but hopefully I'll get to the beautiful part soon, okay? So please bear with me. Right, so let's read Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18. Let me read it for you. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Right? So he's talking about human rebellion who by their unrighteousness, here it is, suppress the truth. Right? They push away or they twist the truth. For, and so here's how they do it. Verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Let me go on to the next paragraph. Verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged, this is the key word here, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. So the key word here is exchange. And so God intended for all created things to testify to God, right? So that when you look at the world, you're supposed to realize what an amazing creator, what 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 a what a, a glorious God who created all these things. But what we've de- what we've done is we've distorted that truth, and we've exchanged the glory of God for idols made of created things. And so the result of the fall then is an inversion. Okay, so not just a distortion, but an inversion. Um, or a twisting of the natural order the way God intended it, right? This reversal. So if I can sort of graphically display it, right? God created everything so that created things testified to God. But human rebellion has made it so that we've twisted, we've distorted it, we've reversed it so that we've put created things We've made them idols over God, right? And this is a this is a distortion. And so, if I could um, graphically display it, because uh, we're going to keep coming back to this over and over and over again. So we've exchanged the truth, right? We've exchanged. This is the key word. 
we've exchanged God in place of idols. Okay? Um, and I, if I could give sort of an illustration of this, right, of this inversion, of this twisting, um, it's not just that we're breaking God's rules or breaking God's laws, but that we're actually, it's like this, right? God is a, imagine God as, a, as an artist, and he's created this beautiful uh, painting. And we, in our rebellion, we go up to the painting and we smear it all up. We have to distort it, right? Um, we have to upset the way he's designed everything. And another illustration, and this one is an even more clunkier illustration, but it's more, um, it's more helpful, I think, in terms of, of where I'm trying to go. You know, imagine that God has created things so that this is his artwork. There's A and then there's B, right? So what we've done in our rebellion against God is we've come and we said, ah, A then B, we're going to make it B then A. That's what Paul is saying. We've inverted, we've twisted, we've exchanged, right? And this twisting, this inverting reverberates throughout the human experience Particularly, Paul's great example is human sexuality, right? Um, So let's read on, verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts, gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. This word impurity, he's talking about sexual impurity. To the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because, there's that word again, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, right? So here we we have... um, this cascading of, of exchanging, here's the truth, and we've exchanged it for a lie. Uh, and we've worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And so the consequence of this exchanging is that God then gives us up to our sins, and the consequence of sin is more sin. Um, that's pretty deep, right? And the full ramifications of sin become realized in, 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 in the human condition, and the most obvious and the most uh, glaring of that distortion is human sexuality. So uh, the final then exchange, and we're, we're going to read it, read it is, we've exchanged heterosexual marriage for homosexuality. All right, please bear with me, okay? Um, Let me explain. So verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged. Okay, there's that key word again, right? We're exchanging things. I mean, we go to God's uh, creation design, and we say, I'm going to twist it. I'm going to distort it. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And by the way, Paul's not saying necessarily that this is a conscious thing, right? Nobody says, uh, I know there's a real God, and I know the created things are just from him, but I'm going to make them idols, right? It's unconscious, meaning we're fully persuaded of it, but of course, from the, from the divine perspective, what we're doing is we're exchanging, right? The way things ought to be... Um, and we're twisting, right? So, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. We're going to come back to, I'm going to explain what that means. Contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So, what is Paul saying then? Paul is saying that Homosexuality, the, the, the specifically homosexuality he's talking about, is part of this distortion, this twisting of God's created order, this um, his design. And let me go back to uh, the end of verse 26, right? He says, uh, their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, right? So what does he mean by natural relations or contrary to nature? He's not saying... 
oh, homosexuality is wrong, which I think a lot of people misinterpret. He's not saying it's wrong because you don't see it in nature or it's not natural. Um, actually, I think that's not true, right? You do observe it in nature, in animals. Um, what he's saying is when he says nature, he's going back to Genesis. He's going back to the original creation design. And if you read the whole passage, it's very obvious from the context that Paul throughout is making references to Genesis. Right? So, for example, in verse 20, he's talking about the creation of the world. In verse 22, he's talking about the birds, the animals, and the reptiles. Right? So he's, he's echoing, he's evoking Genesis the whole time. He's thinking about Genesis. So you can't understand this until you go back to Genesis. All right? And here we're getting closer and closer to what I'm trying to articulate as the beautiful vision that the Bible articulates. So what's going on in Genesis? Right? If you go back to Genesis chapter 1, um, what we see is this very important concept called the image of God. Okay? The Imago Dei. So it says <clears throat> in verse 27, God created man, it says, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him Listen, male and female, he created them. So let's pause here for a moment, okay? So what does it mean that we're made in the image of God? It means that we resemble God, right? That we reflect his character, right? That we are like him. And notice, it doesn't say that period, right? It doesn't say we resemble God, we're made in the image of God, period. Let's go on to the next idea, he fleshes it out. And notice the way he fleshes it out, right? I mean, the, the writer of Genesis. He doesn't say, we are made in the image of God, parent and child, or farmer and, you know, city artisan. The specific sort of uh, aspect of humanity that he, the writer, highlights to describe our image, imaging of God is what? Our gendered reality, right? That we are male and female. So that humanity is not made unisex, but we have two distinct halves to humanity, male and female, so that humanity is not this sort of undifferentiated sameness, but we have a dual sexuality. And this dual sexuality goes to the very core of the human condition. It goes to the very core of how we reflect and image God. I think in a, in a way that is more profound and deeper than, for example, race or ethnicity. Because race and ethnicity, right, that also um, uh, uh, creates differences in humanity. But race and ethnicity, to some degree, to a large degree, are constructed realities, right? They're functions of culture, right? Uh, language and, and dress and, uh, and diet and so forth, but not gender. Gender does not arise out of culture, it's not just biological, but it goes deep to the human condition. And, you know, a lot of people, uh, if you read the literature uh, critiquing the classic Christian position, this is a point where a lot of people say, well, um, what is the actual difference between male and female? And the Bible never actually specifically says what the difference is. But I think modern scholarship has really caught up because it used to be the case that uh, male and female were also considered constructed realities um, that arose sort of out of culture and that there's only biological differences. But a lot of researchers, particularly when we've uh, studied early childhood development, we've come to a deeper appreciation that maleness and femaleness, masculinity, femininity, is something deep and inherent within us. Not to say that there are stark poles. I think there's a spectrum of this. Um, but we feel it. We see it, right? There's a difference between men and women. Why? Why does God create us male and female? Why doesn't God just create us as unisex gendered? And part of the answer is in verse 28. 
right? So God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens of the, of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. So you say, aha, reproduction. We need gender to have sexual reproduction. And that's part of the answer. We're going to circle back around to that a little bit later. But I think we can imagine a world in which God created us to have asexual reproduction, right? Or maybe, like, the story of the storks is not a story, but it actually happens. So why do we need male and female um, uh, uh, intercourse to have babies? That's not the complete and full answer. There's something deeper even than that, okay? So what is that deeper thing? We have to go back to Gen- We have to go to Genesis 2, all right? So follow me. We're going deeper and deeper into the rabbit hole. Um, so Genesis 2 is really helpful because Genesis 2 imagines, or Genesis 2 gives us a world in which there's only one gender, right? There's only, it's a world of only men, right? And so, verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone, right? So he's saying it's not good that the world is only, it's a giant man cave, Right? He says, so I will make him a helper fit for him. So this is very, very important. Because this is it. This, this, we're, we're at the, we're at the, the, the core, the, the, the matrix of why is it that the Bible says no to homosexuality. We're, 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 we're here. Okay? So I'm going to make him a helper fit for him. There's two key concepts here. First, helper. Uh, the woman is to be the helper of the man. And let me just say very, very, very clearly that the word helper is not a denigrating term. It's not a derogatory term. Because if you read, for example, in Psalms, God is, continu- God is continually described as my help, our helper. Because if you think about it, help can only, you can only help someone if you have resources, if you have strengths that the other person does not possess. So, you know, don't think junior assistant, helper to, you know, secretary to the CEO, all right? But I want you to think of a more parallel relationship. It's not even like, oh, you know, I can help Judah with my his homework because I know more than he. That's also an unparalleled relationship. It's a parallel relationship. So uh, Adam is alone, but he's inadequate. He's lacking. So he needs a helper, okay? And... The specific kind of helper that he needs is someone who is fit. This translation is, I think, um, accurate, but a little bit misleading. In the NIV, it's suitable. That's also kind of hinting at it. The Hebrew word here is actually a compound word. It's two words smashed together. And it's literally, it means like, opposite. I will make somebody who is like opposite to Adam. So man needs, right, someone who is like him, but who is opposite to him, somebody who complements, somebody who's so different and yet so similar. And we see that played out in this drama of Adam inspecting all the animals, right? And you'll notice that all the animals fulfill this part of the equation, They are very much opposite. They are very different, but nothing is like him. So let's read verse 19. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. This is very important in in the Old Testament particularly to call somebody something, like a name. You're not just, it's not just like a moniker. It's not just a sound. Uh, But to name someone is to describe their nature, the essence of who they are. Right, so he's asked to give them names. In, in other words, he's, he's, Adam is asked to describe their nature, their essential, who they, what they essentially are, and whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and, and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But listen, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. He inspects all of the animal kingdom, all creatures, and he says, none fulfill this requirement, right? I'm lacking, 
and I haven't found this complementary pair that I need. And so, verse 21, oh, and so, verse 21, God creates woman. And I want you to notice that the woman, unlike any of the other creatures, is created out of Adam, right? He takes a rib bone out of Adam, signifying equality, signifying parity. Verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And I want you to see that the woman is clearly and distinctly woman. Different, right? Um, I'm sorry, uh, different, right? And notice that Adam names her woman. And the English were, were extremely lucky. The English translation mimics and mirrors what's going on in the Hebrew because it's a word play. Because in the, uh, because in the English, it's man and woman, right? And uh, in the Hebrew, it's ish and isha. And what it's saying is that, um, notice that there's a root that's the same, right? And yet there's something that's very different, right? So even the language is explaining what's going on. Adam sees Eve. <laughs> you got to imagine this moment. He feels alone. He inspects all of the animals. They all fall short. They're all inadequate. He falls asleep, and when he wakes up, he sees Eve. And he looks at her, and he immediately recognizes sameness. You're like me. You're not like the other animals. And yet, you're not me. You're not a duplicate. You're not another man. You're something entirely different. You're a woman. Right? And verse 23 so he bursts into poetry, into song. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. What is he saying? He's saying, we're the same. We're like each other. She shall be called woman. Remember, the name signifies the nature. He doesn't name her man, second man. He names her woman. He recognizes her difference because she was taken out of man. Now, that drama, within the context of that drama, here it is, I'm getting to it now, God creates marriage. And what is marriage? What, what is the meaning of marriage? Marriage is not just to fulfill our sense of loneliness. It's not just to give us an institution for child rearing. All of that is true. Here is what Genesis is telling us, is the essence of marriage. The essence of marriage is the union of complementary genders, right? It's bringing together the two halves of humanity, men and women, each with their unique strengths, each with their unique perspectives, with their unique glories that are, that are, um, that are inexchangeable, and it's bringing them together. Verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So what the Bible, therefore, is saying is that marriage is the union of complementary complementary genders. So that um, Gender differentiation goes to the very heart of the meaning of marriage. Okay? Now, why should that be? Okay, you're saying fine, but why? The reason is because marriage is a gospel sign. Okay? Marriage points beyond itself to something deeper. It goes to the gospel. And what is the gospel? The gospel is our union with Christ. So, for example, so uh, past the passage I printed for you, Ephesians 5, right? Paul writes, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 
he's evoking, he's thinking about, he's, he's reflecting on what's happening in Genesis 2, Genesis 1 and 2. And then he says, verse 32, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And now we understand the whole story. Because notice the parallels between the gospel and heterosexual marriage. Right? Because what is the gospel? The gospel is what? The union of Christ and the church. God and humanity. And notice, right? And it comes back to the Imago Dei. Because we're the Imago Dei, we resemble God. We're like him. Right? We reflect him. And yet, we're completely separate and different from him. And yet, we are made to be united, to be together. Right? And so, this is the whole point. Heterosexual marriage is, the, is this image of the drama of redemption of the marriage of Christ and the church. So, in heterosexual marriage, you have... Well, let me... Let me, let me find my board space. So in heterosexual marriage, you have man and woman uniting together as, as this complementary marriage, and it's a picture of Christ and the church. Right? And therefore, the distortion or the exchanging of the creation design of heterosexual marriage for homosexuality is in the end a denial of the gospel. Or maybe that's too strongly put. It is a distortion of this really beautiful central gospel picture that the Bible has laid out. Right? Um, Right? So we've exchanged the truth of the way God intended things as a sign, as a pointer to the gospel for homosexuality, which is what? What is, what is human rebellion? The human, re- human rebellion is saying to God, up yours, right? Human rebellion is saying to God, I don't care about the way you've designed things. I'm going my own way. And this is why uh, in the garden, right, the marriage of Adam and Eve was always supposed to be pointing to Christ and the church, the marriage in Revelation. Um, Revelation 19, let me just read it really, really quickly. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of... The, uh, it's not printed, sorry. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride, the church, has made herself ready. Let me just say one more thing real quickly uh, and I'm going to sum it up and then I'll open up for questions. Uh, let's go back to the whole children issue. I think in this light, right, that marriage is this complementary union of genders is what makes uh, the fact that children come out of marriage really beautiful and fitting. Because think about it. The way God designed it is so that when a man and woman unite in marriage, the concrete realization of that, of that, of that union is a child so that each child is vitally connected to both halves of humanity. Right? He, each child has a mother and a father each child is is vitally dependent on the perspectives and the and the and the um, glories of both masculinity and femininity. So we're not relegated, we're not um, segregating ourselves, but we're connecting to each other, right? And so here's the here's the uh, and and the fact that homosexual union does not produce children, I think, is a hint that God has woven into the human condition. It's a sign to us of what God had always intended, this picture that always God has always intended. And therefore, here's the conclusion. Homosexuality uh, is excluded in the Bible. Why? Because it is the rejection, it is the inversion of God's beautiful drama of, of male-female marriage. Because homosexuality, homosexuality lacks the complementary union that makes marriage a pointer to the gospel, right? Because it lacks this analogous imaging. Um, homosexuality is the rejection 
of the gendered reality of human beings. That's a little bit strongly put. What I mean is this, is that in heterosexual marriage, right, God has created it so that we need each other, right? So that the distinctions and the differences between men and women, which can cause conflicts, and in fact it does cause conflicts, we're brought together and we're taught we need each other, um, we depend on each other, um, and the final thing is that homosexuality aborts the deeply meaningful process of child, child rearing. And if I were to explain it to a child, right? Let me put it this way. Let me distill it down now that I've explained everything. If I were to explain it to a child, I would say this. I would say that homosexuality, the Bible expresses disapproval of homosexuality. Why? Because the very purpose of marriage is to bring the two halves of humanity together into union, right? Into this wonderful complementary relationship. And there's something even deeper going on beyond that, which is that that complementary gendered union is ultimately pointing to the gospel, which is Christ and the church. And let me pause here, because I know I've said enormous mouthful. Um, I don't want to address questions that I think might naturally occur to you, which is sort of all the objections that we might hear in, in our culture, popular culture. I've uh, gave, given you a preview of that in the back page. Next week, so this is a tantalizing hint, for next week I will spend the whole time systematically going through all of the objections or the questions, but is there any questions about the actual moral logic that the Bible is articulating? Is there clarifica- clarification? And let me also say this. I think um, the gay rights movement... There's so much to commend about the gay rights movement, again, for according dignity and respect to our gay friends. Uh, I think the, also the great benefit the gay rights movement has done for the church is it's forced the church to think more deeply. Because I remember as a kid, every time, any time um, homosexuality was even mentioned, it was always mentioned with disgust. And it was always just said, you know, ugh, it's wrong, but I never got an explanation. And I'm glad for the gay rights movement because now we don't say UG anymore because now, because so many of our gay friends have come out of the closet, we know them, right? Uh, we don't say UG, but now it also forces us to think, okay, why still does the Bible, um, why does it say no? And I think it forces us then to think so much more deeply about the moral logic, which again connects back to Genesis. So, any clarifying or interactive questions on this on this uh, explanation. Yes? Uh, so, um, regarding the surrogacy or um, having um, fostering a child, what, in terms of the gospel, it, what does it say versus, like, having a child versus a surrogate versus a foster a child? It, is there a, what is the difference in terms of, of significance? That's a great question. Um, I want to be very, very clear that I'm not disparaging blended families. Uh, in fact, um, blended families or, in ca- uh, uh, for example, adoption is, in fact, a beautiful image of the gospel. Uh, but uh, its beauty arises because it's filling in and it's, and it's coming to the rescue of a broken situation. Uh, the broken situation being that some family or some uh, child situation has dissolved. Um, so, so I think the fact that for so many of us we're in blended families, um, and praise God for our families, but the very but but it's an accommodation to the brokenness of this world. Is kind of what I would way I would put it. I hope that answers your question. Any yes, Kenna. So. You know, we talk about man and woman, yeah. but, and, I, and, you know, forgive my naivety on this. Sure. I don't know too much about this, but, you know, you hear about people who are hermaphrodites or intersex. Yes, okay, that's good. That? That's a good question. Ah, excellent. I'm glad you were thinking along those lines. Um, so what do we do with, for example, transgendered people, right, um, who feel like uh, they're born in the wrong sex? Or even or, people who are born with both genitalia. Both genitalia, yeah. Um, so, and I'm going to talk about this at great length next week. It has to do with this. We don't live in the Garden of Eden anymore. 
we live post-fall. The brokenness of the, the, the fall, the human rebellion, results in total, all-encompassing brokenness in the human condition. Here's a question for you. Why is there autism? There was no autism in the, in the garden. Uh, autism, cancer, and I'm not saying, by the way, that uh, uh, transgender people or uh, uh, hermaphrodites, it's autism or something like that. I'm just talking about the general element of human brokenness that we feel like we don't fit in this world. Right? There's something wrong with this world. Um, and I think, for example, transge- our, 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 our transgender friends, I think, tell us something really deep. Because they're saying, listen, look, if, if you're born a man but you feel like you're a woman, they, why, why can't they be content? Because they're saying deep down inside, I feel like I'm a woman. What are they saying? They're saying that gender goes so deep to who I am, to the essence of who I am. I have to, I can't be identified as a man. I have to be identified as a woman. And they're basically affirming the, the, the deep truth that the Bible's saying that man is created, I mean, humanity is created as dual, dual sexuality, dual genders, male and female. Because nobody says, right, eh. Everyone feels like they have to, there has to be this deep identification. Um, I'm not sure if that's an articulate answer. Um, does that help? I'm looking forward to next week. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Dave, did you have a question? Yeah, I'm just trying to figure out that whole fit concept like opposite. Um, yeah. What about situations where you have like a male who exhibits stereotypical female traits sure. with another male who exhibits stereotypical male traits? In yeah. that case... It seems like it would be complimentary. Yeah, so speaking in broad generalizations, what you typically see in gay relationships is you see a kind of mirroring of that sort of dual-gendered reality in humanity. Um, That's not true across the board, but it's largely true or stereotypically true. There's something deep inside the human condition that's trying to get back to this. And again, I'm not saying, and I'll talk about this next week, I'm not saying that this is a conscious rebellion on the part of our gay friends. It's not. Um, I, I uh, agree that it is an innate condition, um, more so for men than for women. We'll talk about that. There's a lot of uh, sociological data that suggests it's a bit more um, malleable in women. But it's an innate condition. But they're trying. And why is it an innate condition? Again, because I think we live post-fall. There's a brokenness. I'm not saying gay people are broken and I'm not broken. I am broken. I'm just broken in different ways. We're all broken. There's something wrong with all of us. We're alienated from creation, but we're trying to get back to this beautiful, harmonious, we're trying to get back to the garden, is how I would understand it. Can I take that one step further? Sure. Um, What about couples where there's a male who exhibits stereotypical female traits and a female who exhibits exhibit stereotypical male traits and it works because mm. they're complementary but they're not really male and female they're more like male in a female's body and a female <laughs> I mean, sure that sure sure like we can imagine more. that yeah. um, I guess what I would say again is that there's the, the basic truth right like when we distort or when we suppress the truth and again, this distortion is not self-conscious, right? But it's, it's part of the human uh, condition of fallenness. There's always some underlying deeper truth that we still affirm. And I, I would say in that situation, we're still affirming the complementary nature of marriage. Like, if you could create a clone, you would not marry your clone. Uh, why not? I mean, maybe some, somebody would. But we would say that's a deeply, that's a deeply perverse thing, Right? You don't marry yourself, or even if you met somebody who's exactly like you in every way, a mirror image, a mirror thing, there's something lacking because the beauty of marriage, the beauty of marriage is in this interplay, this complex dynamic of the sameness. We share all these things together, and yet the differentness. Um, Just speaking of my own marriage, right? When I married Christina, I thought she's just like me. And now, after 12 years of marriage, I realize she is completely different than me. And there's something marvelous and beautiful, and it stretches us, and it stretches me, and it forces me to, to think uh, not just so, sort of totally inward and selfish, but it, it forces me outward. I don't know if that helps. 
Let me press forward, okay? Um, now, let me just say this. While homosexuality is a particularly glaring example of human rebellion that Paul uses, right, he highlights it as this example, it is not the ultimate sin. It is not the worst evil. Because note it, and, and I want you to see that homosexuality is part of this full spectrum of human rebellion. And the reason why Paul picks on this is because it goes to something so core, which is the gospel, which is what's happening in Genesis, and it's particularly glaring. Do you know what I mean? Like so much of human rebellion is subtle, right? It's happening inside of us. But this one is so open, right? So he picks on it for that reason. But I want you to realize in Romans 1, let me read it to you if you continue if you continue on, verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Verse 29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. Right? So he's talking about the whole full spectrum. Evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, and inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. What is Paul saying? He's saying just as bad, just as evil as homosexuality is gossiping, is disobedience to your parents, and on and on, right? Greed, selfishness, meaning all of us are deeply broken. All There's something corrupt and evil within all of our hearts. And therefore, and I haven't printed it there for you, if you read on Romans 1, Romans, you, you get to the end of Romans 1, you read to the next verse, this is what Romans 2 says, listen. Right, immediately after the verse I just read you. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. What is Paul's point? Paul's point is not to say gay people on that side, heterosexual people on this side, we condemn them, we judge them. No, he's saying I'm 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 talking about homosexuality as a particularly like a like a um, a lesson, a sort of an object lesson in human rebellion, but you are exactly the same, just perhaps in other ways. Right? And therefore, our response to homosexuality should not be judgmentalism. And for that, the gay rights movement has done the church an enormous favor because the long history of the church is a great deal of bigotry and hatred to our shame. And now we understand we've, we've been chastened. And so feelings of moral superiority or disgust at homosexuality is deeply wrong, as Paul would say. Um, and rather, our response to our LGBT friends should be deep sympathy, love, since we're all sinners, and the whole way we approach uh, dialogue and our friends should be humility, because we are broken sinners, and compassion, but also we should speak with firmness of love. We should speak the truth in love, because if we really love our friends, and they're hurling headlong towards destruction, we need to speak the truth in love, but you can't, you can't speak the truth in love to somebody you only superficially know. You can only do that to somebody... Uh, borrowing on your deep personal capital to a deep, deep friend, you can say, "Let's have a let's have a conversation." So, self righteous judgment of homosexuality is just as sinful as homosexual behavior itself. That's my point. So, I hope that the the class I've tried, I've tried, uh, perhaps I've fallen short. That the Bible we have to balance both the Bible's no to homosexuality and the Bible's yes, firm, strong, resounding yes to love to acceptance, to compassion, right? Um, but it has to be a balance. So now with the time remaining, any follow-up questions? I just wanted to rush through. Yes, John. Good question. Just reading through Romans 1. Yes. Um, it says uh, in verse 27, And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Yes. It kind of sounds like they chose not to have not to be heterosexual. Um, so yeah, I, let me nuance what I just said before. Um, if you look at what the Bible says about sin, it's a very, very complicated psychological picture. So Jesus says everyone who sins is a slave to sin. right? Um, uh, we, we speak of sin as a power that's over us that we are helpless under. But also, sin is something that's deeply volitional, that we choose. And so... It's both something that's innate within us and it's something that we also choose. Uh, 
And therefore, we're culpable. And therefore, we also have the choice to abstain, to maintain sexual holiness. And again, I'm sort of encroaching on what I'm going to talk about next week. But all of us have this innate broken sexual desires. Uh, I remember a friend of mine who was having an affair. Um, and I would talk to him, and I said, what are you doing? Please. His wife was willing to forgive and accept him. I said, you have a wonderful wife. Go back to your wife. You make promises to your wife. And he said to me, I'll, I'll never forget it. He says, I can't. I said, what do you mean you can't? He says, I can't. I love this other woman. So he felt compelled by these desires that were beyond his control. But what does the Bible say? The Bible says, yes, there are these innate desires that you feel like are overwhelming and beyond your control. But the Bible asks you to do a tremendous thing, which is what? To lay down, to, to follow Jesus, take up the cross, and deny yourself, right? So I don't know if that answers your question about homosexuality. I think the whole discussion about homosexuality has sort of you know, gyrated between these two poles. We used to say, no, everyone who's gay chose that lifestyle because we had this false assumption that if it's innate, it can't be a sin. That's flawed thinking. And then now perhaps we're swinging the other direction. We're saying, well, it's all innate. Even within the homosexual, uh, homosexual uh, community, there's a lot of discussion about how much of it is innate and how much of it is actually a choice. Um, I'm not in the gay community. I only have a very superficial understanding, so I'm not going to comment on that too much more deeply, right? But there's some sort of deep interplay between volition and innate desires. I don't know. All right, that's I feel like there can be both, right? Because yeah. I have friends who say they're born gay, and then have friends who say they struggle with same-sex attraction. Sure. But they, and they're trying to remain heterosexual. Yeah, I mean, that's particularly true with women. The statistics show, like for men, like 80%, like 95% of men who are gay feel like this was innate, that they were born gay. Um, 80% of women who uh, engage at any point in their life in lesbianism don't talk about it as an innate desire, but they talk about it as... Um, they chose it, right? So bisexuality in women is a much higher percentage than bisexuality in men. Very few men are bisexual. A lot of women are bisexual. I don't know what's going on. Uh, I'm not a clinical psychologist. <laughs> okay, let's pray. Let's close in prayer. Thank you, everyone, for your attentive patience. Heavenly Father, we approach this topic with fear and trembling um, because we do not want to presume arrogantly that we know everything but we want to approach your scripture humbly as students and we want to learn and perhaps we haven't learned everything yet and so we're excited to go deeper and deeper into understanding the whole drama of redemption and everything that your bible says about human flourishing about human sexuality and and so i pray that this would be a first step help us as christians many of us who who have uh, gay friends to extend deep friendship and love to them um, and to be able to navigate the Bible's no with also the Bible's yes. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, thank you, everybody.